Hi, I am Aditya Mehta, an advocate practicing at the Bombay High Court, and I have with me Mr. Abad Ponda, sir, senior advocate, who has agreed to spare some of his time and share his views on the recent judgment of the Supreme Court regarding the constitutionality of the Prevention of Money Laundering Act. Mr. Ponda, sir, does not need any introduction, having been one of the most sought-after criminal lawyers in Bombay for years. He was also one of the senior counsels who argued this matter before the Apex Court, and so we are lucky to hear his views on the subject. To give a brief background, one of the major issues before the Supreme Court was whether the PMLA as it stands offends the right against self-incrimination. Article 20, Clause 3 of the Constitution reads as follows. No person accused of any offence shall be compelled to be a witness against himself. Section 50 of the PMLA gives the officers of the ED the power to summon individuals to give evidence and also produce documents. It further makes it obligatory for individuals to state the truth and holds that the proceeding of giving evidence constitutes a judicial proceeding. Thus, if one gives false evidence, one can face proceedings under Section 193 of the Indian Penal Code. Further, under Section 63 of the PMLA, not answering a question, not signing a statement, or not producing books and other evidence can attract a penalty under the Act. The question before the court was whether this would offend the constitutional right against being compelled to be a witness against oneself. Mr. Ponda, sir, your arguments in the matter, to briefly summarize it, were concerned with Article 20, Clause 3 and 21 being in clear violation or being clearly violated in Section 50 and 63 of the PMLA. To summarize briefly, you argued that being compelled to answer the questions of ED officers would constitute a violation. Thus, the provision was ultra-virus the Constitution. This is for multiple reasons. One, those named in the FIR of the schedule offence would stand in the character of an accused. Two, although such provisions have been upheld in other acts such as customs acts, etc., your argument was that officers of the ED can be clearly distinguished from customs officers and therefore those judgments would not apply. Three, since under the PMLA, there is no FIR, so to speak. The character of an accused cannot await the filing of an FIR of a complaint, as is the case under these other acts such as the Customs Act. Another aspect of your argument is that the statement being recorded as part of Section 50 would necessarily constitute part of the investigation, and that there is in fact a practice of labeling an accused as uncooperative if they don't answer the questions as required by the department. The Supreme Court, however, has held that a statement recorded prior to arrest cannot claim protection under Article 20, Clause 3. It may come into play only with respect to a statement recorded after arrest. Ultimately, the court has held that it is a matter to be proved at trial. Do you think the court has satisfactorily dealt with your arguments with respect to Section 50 of the PMLA? I am bound by the judgment of the Supreme Court and I have the highest respect and regard for the judgment of the highest court of the country. While I have this respect and reverence for the same, I beg to state with great humility at my command that the issues raised in my arguments with respect to the virus of the Section 50 and its part read with certain parts of that provision only, has not been at all addressed by the Honorable Supreme Court and with great regret I say so. What challenge was raised by me was a challenge 
to the provisions of section 50 sub clause 3 in part. I was not challenging the entire provisions of section 50 because the agencies like the police can summon people, customs, FEMA, FERA, etc. So to call people can never be a matter of challenge. My challenge was restricted to section 50 sub clause 3 in part only. The part being restricted only to a person who was an accused. To say this simply, you can summon people who are not accused. I have no quarrel with that. Section 50 in my humble submission would not violate Article 20 sub clause 3. But once you summon a person who stands in the character of an accused, in my humble understanding of the law, that person cannot be compelled to make an incriminating statement or produce incriminating documents and least of all cannot be chastised or punished for exercising his fundamental right. So my challenge was specific in relation to a person who stands in the character of an accused. My challenge, as you know, was based upon various judgments of the Supreme Court of larger benches than the current bench that heard the matter, namely of constitutional benches, which had already laid down this in analogous statutes and analogous provisions. I personally believe that the arguments advanced on the virus challenge by other councils was more addressed to on the grounds that the customs, the, PM, the enforcement directed officers are not police officers. And therefore, a statement made to them doesn't violate sections 25 of the Evidence Act or Article 20, subclause 3, because they don't become police officers. My arguments proceeded on an alternative footing. I said that I accept the view that the officials of the enforcement director are not police officers. They're akin to customs officers, FERA officers, FEMA officers, officers under the central excise, and like. What I argued was that when challenges were made in the 70s to analogous provisions under the Customs Act and other statutes, the Supreme Court benches came out unanimously with a view that the person who is summoned under the Customs Act or under FERA, FEMA, etc., does not stand in the character of an accused because there is no formal accusation in the form of an FIR or a court issuing process or a complaint being filed against him before the competent court. Therefore, all those challenges failed in the 70s and the 80s in the Supreme Court. In PMLA, we see a completely different scenario. PMLA is dependent on a scheduled offence. Unless there is proceeds of the crime of a scheduled offence, namely one where there is an FIR, PMLA can't be invoked. The moment there is an FIR against a person, it is elementary that he stands in the character of the accused. The question thus raised in the Supreme Court by me was, once a person stands in the character of an accused, can he thereafter, on the same facts, for the similar transaction, be compelled to make incriminating statements or produce incriminating documents. Law says you can't stop a person from being called. But the law says that such a person who stands in the character of an accused cannot necessarily and he has every right to not be compelled to produce documents or make incriminating statements. I feel that the Honorable Supreme Court has dealt more with the issue with respect to Section 25 and the aspect of police officers rather than going down the route with respect to 
a person who specifically stands in the character of an accused and whether he would be entitled to protection under Article 20, sub clause 3, particularly in PMLA cases where this issue is extremely important and directly an issue and on a practical front is tailor-made for the points raised. I genuinely feel, and I'll say this with some kind of humility and yet having the courage of my conviction, that the earlier larger band judgments of the Supreme Court of Ramanlal, Bhogilal Shah and others, which have taken a diametrically opposite view from the view taken in these three judge band judgment, was not considered in its proper perspective. And those submissions have been recorded relying upon the said judgment by both sides. The Honorable Supreme Court of India has not differentiated it or pointed out how it would not apply legally in a matter like this. Therefore, it is my humble and most respectful submission that I feel that the Supreme Court of India has not directly touched this issue and has sought to decide that Section 50 statements don't violate Article 20, Subclause 3 and Section 25 of the Evidence Act more on the issue with respect to them not being police officers than dealing with the fulcrum issue that was raised. So one way in which the Supreme Court appears to not directly deal with this issue is it says that the PMLA and money laundering constitutes a separate offence. So that leads me to my next question, which is, does Article 20, Subclause 3, require a person to be accused of the same offence? The Supreme Court has not in all clear terms said, while interpreting Article 20, Subclause 3, either in this particular judgment or in earlier judgments, that the person gets protection under Article 20, Subclause 3, if he is accused into inverted commas for the same offence, close the inverted commas. This would be reading for the same offence, namely three words into the article which is non-existent. The reason for this is very simple. The protection of silence is available to a person who is accused of any offence. The moment he is accused of any offence, he gets the right to silence to protect himself from not incriminating himself in that offence. It hardly matters whether he is summoned and he is asked to give a statement in some completely different offence for the simple reason that ultimately, if the questions, the facts and the answers and the information sought, whether oral or documentary, is so intertwined that it links you with the earlier offence for which he is charged, and necessarily would incriminate him, he has every right to claim protection in the matter where he is summoned for offences which are completely different. Now, with respect to this aspect of same offence and different offence, I must tell you that, as I mentioned, Ramanlal Bogilal's judgment of the constitutional bench of the Supreme Court, this judgment was interpreted in two judgments in the Delhi High Court. The judgment of Renu Sharma is one and there is another judgment name I forget right now, where the Delhi High Court was called upon to decide specifically this issue. X is charged for cheating and allied offences under the IPC. Thereafter, X is summoned under the Customs Act under 108 to give a statement for alleged violations of 135 of the Customs Act. He is not charged under the Customs Act by the police, nor is he charged by the Customs with provisions of violation of the IPC. He was said to be a person entitled to protection under Article 20, Subclause 3 because he stood in the character of an accused in the IPC offence. And when he was called under the Customs Act, he had every right to say 
that if I give answers to questions which are going to incriminate me in that IPC case by questioning being done in the customs case, it would violate Article 20, sub clause 3 of my constitutional rights. And therefore, the Delhi High Court upheld this. Now, in fairness to the Honorable Supreme Court and in fairness to the judgment laid down by the three-judge bench, they have relied upon a particular judgment of the Andhra Pradesh High Court in Dalmia Cement. If you see Dalmia Cement's case, it is in direct contradiction with <coughs> the judgment of Ramanlal Bhogilal Patel. Shah, the reason is simple. In Dalmia, this argument of Ramanlal was advanced before the Telangana or the Andhra Pradesh High Court. And what the judges did there was, they took a view that you need to be an accused in the PMLA offence for Article 20, sub clause 3 to apply. This is completely contrary to Ramanlal Bhogilal Shah's case, which dealt with the issue where a person, curiously in a customs matter, was also having an IPC offence against him and an FIR was registered against him. That was under the FERA, FERA Act, rather, sorry, not customs. When he was summoned subsequently to appear for the FERA proceedings, and mind you, the words under the FERA erstwhile section 40 are ad verbatim as section 50 of PMLA. He claimed protection under Article 20, subclause 3 and said, you can't call me at all. The Supreme Court disagreed with him and the Supreme Court says, no, you can be called. But because there is an FIR against you for offences, inter alia under the IPC, since you are called under this Customs Act, there is a likelihood of you be answering questions that is going to affect your rights under the FIR. You cannot be called upon to produce incriminating documents or make incriminating statements. And therefore, if you see the law entirely on the subject, no judgments under Article 20, sub clause 3 require that you should be charged for the same offence. On the contrary, the sections and the, the article and all its interpretations given by various judgments is crystal clear to the effect that as long as you stand in the character of an accused for any offence, if you are subsequently summoned and asked to give answers to questions or produce incriminating documents, which would affect your status as an accused in the first matter where you are an accused, independent of the charge of the second case, you necessarily have the protection under Article 20, sub clause 3. Otherwise, this would make the article completely illusory and odious. So just to sort of address uh, one other way in which the Supreme Court seems to deal with this, and I'll just read out a portion of the statute here, is the Supreme Court, Section 50, Clause 2, states that the director, additional director, whosoever, can summon any person during the course to give evidence or to produce any records during the course of any investigation or proceeding under this act. But the Supreme Court seems to observe that often people will be called under Section 50, Clause 2 to deal with the proceeds of crime and uses the word inquiry at this juncture. What do you think is the impact of the substitution of the word investigation with an inquiry under Section 50, Clause 2? With greatest respect to the Supreme Court, the words investigation under the PMLA and the words inquiry under the PMLA operate in entirely different fields. Within section 50, you will get this differentiation. Under section 50, subclause 1, the proceedings envisaged read with section 13 with respect to certain reporting entities is necessarily an inquiry. 
the proceedings in the very same section 50 sub clause 2. The legislature does not use the words inquiry but uses the word investigation. The Supreme Court has gone and substituted the words investigation with inquiry under section 50 sub clause 2, which according to me is completely contrary to a bare reading of the statute. But let's assume that this is a correct interpretation and the Supreme Court wants us to believe that inquiry is required to be read in the place of investigation. The fact still remains that from the point of view of protection of Article 20 subclause 3 of the Constitution of India, it hardly matters whether the proceedings which the person is summoned to appear in is an investigation or an inquiry. The reason for this is very simple. Even in inquiries, the protection under Article 20 subclause 3 applies. If a person stands in the character of an accused on a previous occasion and thereafter he is asked to attend in an inquiry, he cannot be compelled to be a witness against himself by giving incriminating answers or producing incriminating documents in that inquiry which would ultimately affect his right to silence in the matter where he stands in the character of an accused in that earlier FIR. Therefore, from the point of view of Article 20 sub clause 3, it hardly matters whether it is an investigation or an inquiry. On the contrary, if you see the section and if you see necessarily the forms and other documents, the proceedings under 52 have always been envisaged by the legislature and by the ED as being only an investigation. But as I told you, it hardly matters from the point of view of protection under Article 20 sub clause 3. One point I need to make very clear here and need to only remind everybody here is FERA is equal to PMLA. In FERA and in an investigation, on identical situations where there was a predicate offence, FIR, and a subsequent summons under FERA, the Supreme Court in a five-judge judgment of Ramanlal Bogilal Patel, Sasha has taken a view that protection is available to such a person under Article 20, Subclause 3 to the limited extent of not producing incriminating documents or not making incriminating statements. That judgment, according to me, squarely covers the issue. The Honorable Supreme Court, by substituting the words inquiry with investigation, does not in any manner dilute the spirit of the judgment of Ramanlal Bogilal Shah. On the contrary, as I stated earlier, if you go back to 11 judge benches of Kathikal Oghat and you go to the earlier judgments of Sharma, MP Sharma, and various other judgments, including Nandini Satpati, Pulpandi, Selvi, etc., the law is clear. At every stage, be it inquiry, investigation, trial, or even investigation by the police, which is the famous Nandini Satpati case, Article 20 protection is available. And therefore, it is necessary to note that being a witness doesn't relate only to court proceedings. It relates to earlier proceedings also, be it an inquiry, investigation, or otherwise. Therefore, even if the Supreme Court has tried to Portray as if these are proceedings under Section 50, Subclause 2 being only an inquiry, not an investigation. In my humble submission, it doesn't change at all the protection available under Article 20, Subclause 2. One of your arguments uh, during the course of all these submissions was a practical reality that you referred to, which is during this, whether it's inquiry or investigation, there are often statements made to the accused or to be accused that if you do not cooperate, we will arrest you. We will state you did not cooperate during our inquiry. We will make you an accused. Do you think those play a role as well 
in something the Supreme Court should have considered this because this argument of yours seems to have gone entirely unaddressed in that during the so-called inquiry, officers often make statements which may even go as far as being called threats to people who are being questioned. This aspect actually is unconnected with the virus challenge because wherever threats are made by officers and you can establish the same, you go back to Section 24 of the Evidence Act where any statement or confession made by threat inducement or promise is barred in law. That would be on a fact-to-fact basis to be decided on a case-to-case basis and not generally. But I'll say something to you. If you see the form of the summons, which necessarily is in the form of Form 5 of the summons of PMLA, there is a form which necessarily itself threatens persons that if you fail to give evidence and you fail to produce documents and you fail to do what we ask you to do, then necessarily it is a case of violation of Article 20 subclause. It is a case where you will be penalized. So what I am trying to say is the threat starts the moment the person is summoned. He is a person who is told by a written summons that look here, your failure to produce documents is punishable and your failure to produce a state give statements is punishable. So the person is in a fear Forget at the stage of recording of the statement, the moment he gets the summons. And this is not a threat of a statute. A threat of a statute which operates against an accused person. Therefore, I again go back to the beginning when we discussed this. I have only restricting my challenge to persons who are accused and only to them producing documents and not giving statements. Not to witnesses and not to people to appear. Even accused are bound to appear. So coming back to the main issue, this is a clear case where Ultimately, if an official issues you a summons in the format given under PMLA, where it is mentioned, please note, non-compliance is punishable, non-production of document is punishable, not giving statement is punishable. This is a threat which is directly in the teeth of Article 20 subclause 3. And you rightly said that this has not really been addressed to by the Supreme Court. So what about the arguments you made with respect to Section 63? Do you think the court has addressed those arguments satisfactorily? As I told you, the Honorable Supreme Court has more dealt with the issue from the point of view of the requirement of people to tell the truth in proceedings under Section 50. And if they don't do so, then 63 should kick in. I have absolutely no quarrel with this. This is the correct approach. And it's rightly said by the Supreme Court that you can't allow people to get away by saying something which is illegal and then not be pulled up for it. But that's not the issue. The real issue is A a person stands in the character of an accused and B, he chooses to exercise his right of silence, not right to tell lies, but a right of silence, either to produce a document or not to intimate himself. Can he be then penalized for the same? Now let's read 63 carefully. Under section 63 2a, if you refuse to answer a question by the authorities, you can be punished up to 10,000 rupees. Now take an example of a person who actually stands in the character of an accused. He says, I am an accused in a predicate offense and I have a right to silence. The questions you are asking me, sir, are likely to incriminate me in that case and I'll be in a witness against myself in that case. So please note, I am not fooling you or lying to you. I want to keep quiet and exercise my fundamental right to silence. Under 63.2, he necessarily... To A, he necessarily would fall within the four corners of 
or provision for refusing to answer a question and therefore he is liable to pay a penalty of 10,000 rupees each time he does so. Now please take the example. If the officer writes down a righteous person's request not to answer an incriminating question, it would be a clear admission in the same breath of him committing a misdemeanor or a kind of a act which is liable to penalize him up to 10,000 rupees each time he does this. Now let's take this example to a different level. Suppose in the course of recording of a particular statement, there are 100 questions asked which are all incriminating and he goes on righteously maintaining his right to silence and says, I don't want to answer this question. It's likely to incriminate him. That single sitting before the enforcement officer can cost that person 10 lakh rupees for not answering 100 questions at the rate of 10,000 rupees per answer. This is a very serious matter. It will be a case where that person would be chastised for exercising his fundamental right. A direct violation of Article 20, Subclause 3, directly in the teeth of unfairness, directly in the teeth of the test to be applied for the purposes of Article 21 and Article 20, Subclause 3, and particularly a law should be one which is reasonable, fair, not fanciful, not oppressive, not unfair and necessarily equality. It would be a case where you are tampering and tinkering with the liberty of individuals contrary to the procedure established by law and contrary to Article 14 and particularly 20 subclause 3 and 21. Now take another example of documents. If the person summoned is told, please produce this document and he refuses and he's asked to do so three or four times he'll be liable to pay 10,000 rupees penalty for each time he refuses under the provisions of section 632C of the PMLA. This is yet another serious aspect. If he receives 10 or 100 summonses, that figure can go to an astronomical figure of 10 lakhs. So therefore, the issue that arises is, what is the impact of this? The impact of this is very simple. Under section 69 of the PMLA, if you don't deposit this 10 lakh rupees or 10,000 rupees or any kind of a penalty, the law says you will be dealt with under the second schedule to the Income Tax Act and particularly rule for thereof. This provision speaks of the modes of recoveries of penalties and fines and you can suffer the consequences of attachment of sale of the defaulter's property or sale of movable or immovable property or even arrest and detention in civil prison. This is the most serious affront of fundamental rights. It's like living in a society which necessarily is dictatorial and Hitlerian if this is to be taken to its largest level on a practical front. Not only is a person going to be compelled to be a witness against himself, but once he's compelled to be a witness against himself and he fails to fall to that compulsion, he would be penalized and he can face going to jail. There can't be a more greater example of violation of one's fundamental rights. Therefore, I genuinely feel that simply by saying that 63 was incorporated in the statute books to ensure people don't lie or people come out with the truth or don't spin stories is only looking at one aspect of 63. The germane and real issue, where 63 was, what happens when the man says, I want to be silent. He's not lying. He's not misleading the investigation as the Supreme Court deals with 63 more on the grounds of misleading. 
He is exercising his fundamental right. And if he does so, can he be chastised and penalized in the manner that he did so? So one final question. What do you think, given that this judgment does hold the field as of today, will be your theoretical as well as practical roadmap ahead for both these sections? Because they come up on a day-to-day basis for accused all over the country. In PMLA, certainly this judgment holds the field. But I feel that there is going to be a definite challenge, review or a requirement to this judgment to be again looked into at least from the point of view of Article 20 subclause 3 by a larger bench. For the simple reason that we have larger bench judgments like that of Ramanlal Bogilal Shah, which are not discussed at all in the findings of the Honorable Three-Judge Bench Judgment. Where a five-judge bench judgment takes a contradictory view to the three-judge bench judgment in a statute, which is paramateria, one cannot simply ignore the mandate of a five-judge bench judgment and only rely upon this three-judge bench judgment, which has chosen not to comment on that five-judge bench judgment. In other words, I'm speaking of the lower judiciary, the high courts and the trial courts, would be in a flux when the judgment of Ramanlal Bhogilal is cited in its proper perspective and other judgments are cited in their proper perspective, which are to some extent not in consonance with the reasons for terming Section 50 as being non-violative of Article 20, subclause 3 of the Constitution. And when these practical difficulties and on a practical front, it is pointed out that in a given case, the person does stand in the character of an accused. So what happens to his fundamental right? Is he required to wait till the end of the trial? Or can he not immediately raise that issue? What's the value of a fundamental right being deferred in its adjudication till the end of the trial if its trampling of that fundamental right goes on at the threshold? Therefore, we must necessarily understand that we are extremely going to face an extremely difficult proposition and problem in law in spite of this judgment. Because on the practical ground level, merely by saying because they are not police officers or persons don't stand in the character of an accused, Article 20 is not violated, would not solve the problem. What happens when persons do stand in the character of an accused? What happens when those persons demonstrate that this man is compelling me to give answers and produce documents that I don't want to do so? Which judgments will the judges follow? The Ramanlal Bhogilal principle, which is not differentiated, adhered to in the final verdict, except for in the submissions made by both counsel. Or would they follow the current judgment? What would happen in the, in, the, in the situation that we ignore the ground realities that I mentioned earlier about you exercising a fundamental right and facing the flag for it? So these are all very important constitutional issues, theoretically of some importance, but practically of great importance, which needs to be addressed immediately by a larger bench so that ultimately the law can be crystallized and can be operated fairly. I only want to say one thing that I am the last person to criticize Supreme Court judgments or to even comment upon them. Whatever I have said in this interview and interaction is based upon my own limited perception and understanding of the law. The intention was never to say anything which would be derogatory to the Supreme Court of India, which is the highest court of the country. And I am guided by what was stated by Justice Atkin many, many centuries or decades ago rather, where he said, justice is not a cloistered virtue. She must suffer the criticism and comments, even outspoken, but bona fide of the ordinary man. So basically, what I have sought to do today while interacting with you is to share what I believe from the bottom of my heart to be the correct legal position, despite the Supreme Court judgment. And I'm only fortifying and basing what I say based on the Supreme Court judgments itself. 
and interpretation given by them in other cases. I am the last person to say and comment that the Supreme Court is wrong or the Supreme Court was not right or that I don't agree with the Supreme Court judgment. I can only say that there are other Supreme Court judges that don't agree with the current Supreme Court judgment and therefore the matter needs to be ironed out and the creases need to be necessarily ironed out by a larger bench. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Ponda, sir, for taking out your time and giving us this opportunity to hear your views. It was incredibly special, especially because you appeared before this particular bench and argued this particular matter. And we're grateful to you for this. Thank you. My pleasure. All the best. Thank you.